Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is October the 24th, 2011, and this is episode 769 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday. We're going to do our typical Monday show for once after a few weeks of taking a break and switching things around. Listener feedback, but this is going to be a themed listener feedback show. Uh, today's show is all going to be stuff about the economy, uh, News stories, statistics, facts, and a few questions that have come in in the last couple weeks. This was a show I was going to do for you Friday. I decided on some levels it was too disappointing and too depressing to do on a Friday. I actually think it's going to be a less depressing show today. I had some time to think of some things. I'm going to frame some things that are not going to be rosy or happy for you, but I'm going to put this in a perspective for you that I will think makes having an optimistic view at a declining economy something easier to understand what the other side is, what it looks like when we come out on the other side, and how prepared we have to be to kind of do battle through it. I'll leave it at that for now. Before we get into the main topic and your feedback, though, and remember, folks, if you want to send me feedback, questions, comments, anything like that, the email address is jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. It's my only email address I actually pay attention to. It's not screened other than I screen it to figure out where emails need to be sorted to. If you want to get in touch with me, it's better than a forum message, it's better than a Facebook message, it's better than a YouTube message, it's better than a tweet. It's the one thing you can rest assured I'm probably going to see, uh, and I will probably get a response to you if uh, if a response is warranted. Uh, and what I mean by that is if it's like a suggestion for the show or whatever, I may not respond, it'll go into a queue and we'll see if it happens. There's too many requests to do them all. Uh, but if it's a direct message, especially a short one, right, if it's a short thing, like Three sentences or less, you're probably going to get an answer. If you write me a book, I'll probably read parts of it. You may or may not get an answer. It's just a time constraint, folks. It's not that I don't care. I really do. Uh, before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one, ready-made resources. Hey, what more can we ask for from a company than for them to say, you know what, here's our name and this is what we do. That's what ready-made does. They provide all the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made and ready to go. Point, click, and order on their website. Exceptional pricing, great service. It'll come right to your door. They've been a huge supporter of the show for a very long time, and they continue to support the show um, with a lot of different contests. They've given away a lot of really great stuff, so uh, make sure you consider doing business with ReadyMade, especially as we move into the holiday season if you're thinking about buying something special for that prepper in your life because they've shown us a lot of loyalty as well. Speaking of loyalty and contest, sponsor of the day number two today is BulkAmmo.com. You know, I always say this, but I'll repeat it once again. Your gun, devoid of ammunition, is a really expensive club. It may be a cool-looking club. It may actually be a very good club. And if you know what you're doing with it, it might be actually a very effective weapon. But it's not as effective as it would be if you had ammo for it. You also need to be able to operate that that weapon at an optimal level. And you do that through practice. That means lots of ammo. And if you're going to buy lots of ammo, you want to save money on it. So check out BulkAmmo.com. Now, three of you out there are about to get a great email from Angela over at BulkAmmo.com. And you're going to get a lot of ammo, well, for no cost at all, because you are winners of the recent contest. Let me just give you the winners' first names and what they've won, and then I'll tell you about how the contest went and some feedback from BulkAmmo.com. 
Uh, of course, this is the contest we ran over about the last month. First place went to Sylvia. She won a $200 bulk ammo gift card. Second place went to Scott. He won a $150 bulk ammo gift card. And third place went to Tom. Tom won a $100 bulk ammo gift card. So those folks all won, and that's great, and they all ask questions. I want to give you a little feedback from Angela here. Uh, once she says she's going to email directly the, the winners, uh, so if you are Sylvia, Scott, or Tom, you should get an email from Angela today. Uh, but she also wanted to say, uh, please also note that your followers, that the promotion was very successful. We had over 768 questions that were approved and entered for a chance to win. Everyone's question that followed the guidelines was approved and entered for the drawing. However, due to our small staff and our desire to provide quality answers to the questions, we had only worked through publishing half the questions on the live site. We will get the rest of the answers and questions posted as we work through the second half, but rest assured that everyone's question that followed the requested guideline was counted for a chance to win, and everyone's question and answer will be posted as soon as we can get to them. So, folks, those of you who asked a question, didn't receive an answer, you were still uh, considered in the contest. You still had an entry. Uh, they're trying to put good answers up, not just uh, see above or something like that. All right, uh, next up, remember you can connect with me Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Remember the Survival Podcast is now featured on the Prepper Podcast Radio Network, available at PrepperPodcast.com, and they have a really cool app over there with Stitcher, and if you install Stitcher on your Android or your iPhone or whatever, you can stream not just the Survival Podcast, but basically a live stream of all of their different podcasters, so consider checking that up out. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Support the show at about 20 cents an episode. Remember, military, law enforcement, firefighters, Peace Corps members active due to your prior service. Email me with details of your service before joining the Member Support Brigade, and you will get a special service discount. Uh, I just need to know kind of where you served and what you did. Uh, don't send me copies of your ID or anything like that. Some of you guys, I think, uh, you, you think too much about that and think I'm going to be too strict on it. Uh, basically, if you've served, let me know what you did. I'll know you're not BSing me, and we'll give you that special service discount. All right, with that, we've got everything wrapped up, and I want to go into today's show, and I want to tell you that some of the stuff I'm going to tell you today sucks. Uh, it really sucks. And some of the things I'm going to extrapolate from the information that I have from, from this stuff sucks even worse. The future that I'm going to paint for you today is not going to be a wonderful one, but there's going to be optimism in it. Um, the second thing that I have for you today is actually going to be a very optimistic view about the rebound of, of uh, America. I'm going to tell you why it can't happen exactly the way that they're saying I'm going to be completely and totally honest with you, and uh, we're not going to have a picture that looks anything like James Rawls's book, entertaining, entertaining though it is, The Coming Collapse, Patriots the Coming Collapse. We're going to see something that's more like, oh, I don't know, the reality of what it's looked like when economies have collapsed in the past. And some people are going to walk through this time, not unscathed, but not harmed the way that we would normally think of. Some people are going to be crippled. Some people are literally going to be killed by it. And I have an interesting analogy for you that I will give to you in just a minute. I just want to kind of prime the pump with that. But, of course, what I want to start out with today, and I want you guys to understand, I did a lot more work of calling out the stuff that I was going to talk about today than I normally do for a feedback show. Um, I went through about 50 different stories on the economy to come up with what we're going to talk about today. But this one came in just today. Uh, from someone uh, in the audience, let's see, who actually sent this one in. And it's, it's quite telling. This is from Nate in Maine. 
Nate sends me a story. It's on CNBC. The Vatican is calling for a central world bank to be set up. Let me read a little bit of this to you. Again, this was published just today uh, by Reuters. Uh, the Vatican on Monday called for an establishment of a global public authority and a central world bank to rule over financial institutions that have become outdated and often ineffective in dealing with, fairly with crisis. A major document from the Vatican's Justice and Peace Department should be music to the ears of the, quote, Occupy Wall Street, end quote, demonstrators. I don't think the Occupy Wall Street generators, demonstrators have any idea what this even would mean. So I don't care if it's music to their ears or not. Um, and similar movements around the world who have protested against the economic downturn. The 18-page document, quote, towards reforming the international financial and monetary systems in the context of a global public authority, end quote, was at times very specific, calling, for example, for taxation measures on financial transactions. Let me give you the Jack Spearco no-bullshit interpretation of taxation measures on financial transactions. That's a tax every time money flows anywhere. That would be, for those of you that need it broken down and be blunt hit over the head with it, a global sales tax. Okay? So you have local sales tax, city sales tax, state sales tax, probably going to have a VAT tax coming out in the United States eventually where the United States is like a, but comes out to be basically a national sales tax, which is even more oppressive to people and commerce than a sales tax because it will be a value-added tax at every stem along the way. This is a global VAT tax. Value-added tax works like this. If I sell you something, let's say right now that you, I'm Jacko and you're Listener Co., right? And we both are in the state of Arkansas. And I sell you a product. Well, you would think there's sales tax on that product. But let's say I do flooring and you're a contractor and you're going to then go and install that flooring and you're going to charge your customer for it. In that arrangement with a sales tax, when I sell it to you, you are a reseller. It's not the final point of resell. And you charge the sales tax to the customer at the end and you don't pay me a sales tax and I don't withhold it. If you were buying it for your own house, then I would withhold sales tax. Simple, easy, only the end user, only the end customer in the chain pays a tax. In a value-added tax, when the manufacturer built the flooring and sold it to the wholesaler, it would be taxed. When the wholesaler sells it to me, the distributor, it would be taxed again. When I sell it to you, it would be taxed. And when you install it, it would be taxed yet again. That's a VAT tax. Every time money flows from one party to another, there's a tax on it. So I think it's very important that you don't gloss over that one little phrase and what this proposal out of the Vatican is for um, when they say a taxation measure on financial transactions. That's what they mean. Now that sounds actually very similar to what? Carbon tax. Right? In a way, it's very similar to a carbon tax. Not in how it's applied to the individual, but how the banks make money. Do you see that every time money moves somewhere and there's a transaction, banks make money. If we increase the transactions, the banks make more money? Hmm. Who do you think wrote this report? Do you think the Pope wrote this report? Or do you think a group of banks wrote this report and gave it to the Vatican and said, hey, you guys put this out? I'm thinking it's the second one. Okay, back to the uh, article. The economic financial crisis which the world is going through calls everyone, individuals and peoples, to examine in depth the principles and culture and moral values of the basis of social coexistence, the report said. It condemned what it called, quote, the idolatry of the market, end quote, as well as, quote, neoliberal thinking, end quote. It said, it said looked exclusively at technical solutions to economic problems. In fact, quote, in fact, the crisis has revealed behaviors like selfishness, collective greed, and hoarding of goods on a great scale. 
translation, you have too much and other people have too little. Uh -huh. And the global bank will fix this. How do you think they're going to do that? It said adding that the world economics needed a, quote, ethic of solidarity among rich and poor nations. Quote, if no solutions are found in various forms of injustice, the negative effects that will follow on a social, political, economic level will be destined to create a climate of growing hostility and even violence and ultimately undermine the very foundations of democratic institutions, even the ones considered most solid, end quote. So you can read the rest of this article as you, if, if you want to. I will put a link to it on the website uh, in today's show notes. But basically, I want you to really understand what we're talking about here is not just a global bank. We're talking about global socialism. Uh, the, the, the code of poor and wealthy nations standing in solidarity means that the wealthy nation bails out the poor nation in every meaningful way. That the poor nation should look to the wealthy nation and the standard of living of both nations should be equalized. That That's... That's what the words mean. That's what they're actually saying, that we should try to create a society where everybody is as equal as possible economically. Um, the only way that you come up with something so stupid, and it is something so stupid, is to come up with a situation where we ignore the laws of economics. And that's, that's a flat-out reality here. Without ignoring the laws of economics, there's absolutely no way that we can even entertain such stupidity. It is simply not possible to have an economy where everybody's equal. Uh, that, that belies the very nature of an economy. An economy is based on the exchange of goods and services. It's based on investments. It's based on work and output versus input. It's based on a, a myriad of things. And it's, it sounds all utopian to think that we could create a world where everybody just has the same. And everybody has, you know, the nice house and two kids and the American dream for the whole world. Um, we can't have the American dream for all Americans. So we can't have the American dream for the whole world. What this is actually about is having the freaking, I don't know, the third world dream for the whole world. We'll just drag down the wealthy nations to the same level as the, as the impoverished nations and then meet somewhere in the middle. The problem is it's a de-incentivized economy. If you can go ask people that, you know, were part of the former Soviet Union how well that kind of socialism works out. It results in economic catastrophe. It results in economy devoid of productivity. It results in scarcity of items that we have come to expect that would just always be there. It's just, it just doesn't work. What would work in this is a global government. Understand that there is a huge move. This is in conspiracy talk, folks. There is a huge move by the wealthiest people in the world to move into a state of global governance. Because that's the best thing in the world for those who want a globalistic monopoly economically, is a global fascist state. right? Now, what do you need to have a government? You need money. That's the big thing you need to have. You have to have control of the population through taxation. If we create a global bank with taxation on transactions, basically a global VAT tax, and everything goes to that central bank, I don't care if it's one half of one tenth of one percent, it adds up to become the largest economy from a gubernatorial standpoint that ever existed on planet Earth. It has massive power, it has massive control, and it gets to set economic policy on a global scale. It makes the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the United Nations both look like jokes when it's funded through global commerce. It makes the wealthiest banks in the world wealthier than ever, and the Vatican is suggesting this is a good idea.
So I, I just want to frame that because there's going to be more and more calls to solve the problem through governmental cooperation in the future. That should tell you something about the direction of freedom, not in the U.S., but in the world, and what direction it's headed. It, right now, freedom is on the ropes. Unless you live in a completely totalitarian state, where you would get to a state where you, you feel like you have half the freedom we do in America and you feel like it was great, those are the only people that are going to see an emergence of freedom. We're not just talking about an economic attempt at socialism here. We're talking about a liberty and governance attempt at socialism. In other words, some nations just, we, we can't, they just can't have that much freedom over there. Right? They just can't have it. So not only do we have to give up the money from the free, wealthy societies that was created by freedom, by the way, we have to give up the freedom. We have to put everybody in an equal state. Soon TSA will be in shopping malls filling up your 14-year-old daughter. If you have a girl that's your kid, folks, I'm telling you men out there, 14, 15 years old, TSA will be filling her up to let her in a shopping mall if things continue the way they are. I don't have the story for you today, but Tennessee now has the TSA out on the highway system. Right? Alex Jones may be a nut on some things, but when it comes to TSA and where that thing is headed, he is dead flipping on. That's what's coming. And it's part of this whole, let's all get together, hold hands, give peace a chance, sing kumbaya, solve the world's problem through global governance. And the weaker the, the country becomes economically, the more susceptible we are to this. Just want to set the stage with that as we go through this stuff today. Um, here's the optimistic one. This is the most optimistic thing that I've seen about the U.S. economy in a while, and I will tell you there is something to it. This is on the Telegraph, so it's out of the U.K. Uh, they seem to have more clarity than we do, and it's by Ambrose Evans Pritchard, who, by the way, is quite, uh, quite in love with the U.S. ideal um, and may let a little bit of his hope enter his factual writing. So I'm not putting him down. He's actually a really good journalist, but... All of us as journalists, whenever we write, have a tendency to put our emotions and our feelings and our wishes into our writing. So I want to temper it a little bit with that. Um, the title of the article is World Power Swings Back to America. The American phoenix is slowly rising again. Within five years or so, the U.S. will be well on its way to self-sufficiency in fuel and energy. Manufacturing will have closed the labor gap with China in a clutch of key industries. The current account might even be in surplus. Assumptions that the Great Republic must inevitably spiral into economic and strategic decline, so like the clatter of the late 1980s when Japan was in vogue, will seem wildly off the mark by then. Telegraph readers already know about the shale gas revolution that's turned America into the world's number one producer of natural gas ahead of Russia. Lesser, no lesser known is the technology of hydraulic fracturing. Actually, I think it's pretty well known here in the States there, Mr. Pritchard, uh, but maybe the rest of the world doesn't know about this. So less known is the technology of hydraulic fracturing. Breaking rocks with jets of water will also bring a quantum leap into the shale oil, the shale oil supply, mostly from the back-end fields in North Dakota, Eagle Ford in Texas, and other reserves across the Midwest. Quote, the U.S. was the largest single contributor to the global oil supply last year, with a net of 395,000 barrels per day, said Francisco Blanche of Bank of America, comparing the Dakota fields to the New North, to the New North Sea. The U.S. shale output is, quote, set to expand dramatically, end quote, as fresh sources come on, on steam, on stream, possibly reaching 5.5 meters 
per day by mid-decade. This is a tenfold rise since 2009. The U.S. already meets 72% of its own oil needs, up from 50% a decade ago. I wonder how much of that is new production and how much of that is we're using less. And using less not just because of more fuel-efficient cars, but because people are broke and not going anywhere. Quote, the implications of the shift are very large for geopolitics. Energy security, historical military alliances, and economic activity. As U.S. reliance on the Middle East continues to drop, Europe is turning more dependent and will likely become more exposed to rent-seeking behavior from opalistic players, said Mr. Branch. Meanwhile, the China-U.S. seesaw is about to swing the other way. Offshoring is out. Reinsuring is the new fashion. Made in America again, a report this month by Boston Consulting Group said Chinese wage inflation running at 16% a year for a decade has closed most of the cost gap. China no longer is the, quote, default location, end quote, for cheap plants supplying the U.S., A, quote, tipping point, end quote, is near in computers, electrical equipment, machinery, auto, motor parts, plastics and rubber, fabricated metals, and easy furniture. Side note from me here as I continue to read this. What that tipping point actually is, is Americans are broken now willing to work for less. All right? Just understand that's part of it. It's not just the increase in wages in, the, in, in China. It's the decrease in what Americans are willing to work for in the United States. Back to the article. Quote, a surprising amount of work that rushed to China over the past decade could still start to come back. And quote, BCG's Harlan Serkin stated. A gap in, quote, productivity adjusted wages, end quote, will narrow from 22% of U.S. levels in 2005 to 43%. Uh, in 2015, and in shipping, cost, reliability, was techno technology piracy, and, the, and the advanced shifts back to the U.S. The list of, quote, repatriates, end quote, is growing. Uh, Farcor Systems is bringing back assembly of hair dryers to Texas after counterfeiting problems. ET Water Systems has switched its irrigation products to California. Masterlock is returning to Milwaukee. And NCR is bringing back its ATM output to Georgia. Nat Labs is coming home to Florida. Boston Consulting expects up to 800,000 manufacturing jobs to return to the U.S. by mid-decade. With a multiplier effect creating 3.2 million in total, this would take some of the sting out of the long slump. And you can read the rest of the article if you want to from there. That's only about half of it. It's a fairly long article. So basically what they're saying is that manufacturing is going to create a resurgence of 3.2 million jobs total, both direct and indirect. So if you go back to work in a manufacturing facility, you start spending money, other industries spring up around you. When the, when the plant comes back to your little town, little companies that support the plant come back with it or new companies are formed, what have you. And that this is a rosy picture for the United States. Additionally, our ability to extract natural gas and oil is, is being accelerated. We're beginning to pump that oil. We're beginning to drill, baby, drill. We're, except it ain't happening. All right, that's the first problem. All right, all this climate change BS that's going on and all this carbon tax and everything else is being used to suppress the exploration and extraction that we could be doing to bring this energy to bear on, on the economy. Number two, our government's too stupid to do one or the other, you know, to do both instead of one or the other. So either we're going to stay married to the idea that we're going to put a solar panel on everything from refrigerators to a, a potato chip fryer, Or we're going to drill, baby, drill, and use oil and gas. It seems that our government can't get its head around the idea that there's a whole bunch of natural gas and oil out there. right? And, and, and no matter what anybody says, the polar bears aren't going to die if we burn some of it. And if we extract it, there's a lot of money in extraction. There's a lot of jobs. There's a lot of cheap energy can be produced. There's a lot we can do to get the economy rolling again. 
And if we did that, that would all be great. And if at the same time we were doing that, we actually built up the alternative energy infrastructure using the fossil fuel energy to create renewable energy sources, we'd be better off. No, the two sides want to fight instead of work together. Right? So that's the first problem with this. But here's, here's the bigger problem. Let's say everything that Mr. Pritchard says in this article is true. Let's say we pull our collective heads out of our asses and we get rid of the current ass clown. And let's assume that there was an ass clown in the Republican field, uh, other than Ron Paul, who's not going to get elected as much as that breaks my heart to say. Let's assume that Perry or Romney or one of these guys that actually has a chance would pull the lid off of this thing and run forward with it full steam and build the alternative energy sector at the same time. The best of both worlds. Let's assume the optimal, let's take it, let's run with it and everything else. And we still have a $110 trillion hole in unfunded obligations at the federal level alone. $110 trillion hole in the economy. Right now, there's about $14 trillion U.S. dollars in existence. That's the rec- you know, current estimated M3, $14, $15 trillion. We don't know what it is because they don't want to tell us anymore. Who knows? It could be $16 trillion. The inflation could be out of hand and all the money's locked up right now. And it's going to be worse than we ever imagined when they let it go. Who knows? It could be $20. It's $110 trillion in unfunded obligations at the federal level. On top of this is trillions of dollars in bond loans that cities, counties, and states simply cannot repay. And there is a tremendous number of retirees drawing from the city, county, and state level that are not going to get all their money. I don't care if it's fair. I don't care if it's right. I don't care if the union stands on its head and does head spins and, and, and creates a, you know, a, a centrifugal force that pulls people in from around it and, and riots. And I don't care because the money's not there. So... No matter what we do from a standpoint of the U.S. swinging back to power and bringing home jobs, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If unemployment goes down to 5%, we still have bills we can't pay. And 5% is about as good as it gets. And it's more optimistic than I am between now and 2020. Right? It doesn't matter if we go back to producing 100% of our own energy. It doesn't matter. We still have bills we can't pay. Right? We, we have created a hole we cannot extract ourselves from. Unless we do something very, very drastic and everybody takes it on the chin and everybody does it collectively together. And I'm going to save how that works for the end of today's show. But I'm going to come back to this optimistic view and tell you why part of it's true. But we have to look at some more of the real damaging things that we're, you know, we're, we have ahead of us. Um, next one I have for you today is by, uh, Paul, Paul Brodsky or Brodsky, I guess is his name, Paul Brodsky, on uh, Zero Hedge, which is a great blog, by the way, you should, you should check out once in a while. But his statement is, the seeds of destruction were and still are sown in the bond markets. Let me read a little bit of this to you. Paul Brodsky doesn't, does not trust the bond markets. That position may seem strange coming from someone who spent most of his professional career trading bonds, but it's precisely this insider knowledge that has led him to start directing investors to safer harbors. Please remember as I go on, folks, Safe harbor has always been bonds. That's always been the safest place other than a savings account for your money. You buy bonds. You sit on them. You only make a few percent, but you're not going to lose. You can usually beat inflation. And, you know, if it's a municipal bond, the city, state, fed, whoever always pays the bill. 
Alright? Let me go back to the article. In fact, he thinks their credit system is so far out of control that it will cause a massive and largely unavoidable at this point devaluation of the U.S. dollar as most other fiat currencies as well. In our interview with Paul, we asked him to explain the reasons for his concern and to detail how he sees the bond market breakdown unfolding. At the heart of the matter is a run-up in the overnight systemic repurchase agreements among banks that started in 1994, which goosed the ensuing credit-driven buying orgy in our economy and has left the system much more vulnerable to exogenous shocks as a result. Here's what uh, a quote from uh, Mr. Uh, Brodsky. All the way through 2006, a monetary aggregate called M3, which was the only aggregate that included repurchase agreements. This is very, very important, folks. I know it sounds like economic boredom. Please listen to this. M3 is all the money in circulation. And it was the only metric that included repurchase agreements, which is the process by which banks fund themselves with each other. So that's the banks moving the money back and forth overnight so both sides can play the Ponzi scheme. So Bank of America shifts the money over to, to, uh, to, you know, to, to, to WAMU, and then WAMU shifts it back, and it was just there long enough to execute the loans as a reserve. And once the, the loans were executed, the loans be, please get this. God, this is so important. Let's say you are Bank of Yoho, and I am Bank of Joho, right? And Bank of Yoho wants to make a bunch of loans today. And Bank of Joho doesn't. So Joho sends Yoho uh, half a trillion dollars. That counts as your reserves. You go out and Make a bunch of loans. Those loans now go on your asset sheet as payables. So they're now an asset. You put them over in the asset column, even though they're a liability because the creditor may not pay for them. You then transfer the money back to me, and I do it too. And every time you need higher reserves, we just shift money back and forth. That's how we got in this mess. It's so much worse than anybody imagines. Let me go back to it, okay? Uh, the, anyway, that grew by 12% a year, enormous amount, basically tells you the overnight lending above banks provided the fuel from which all the term credit, 30-year mortgages, auto loans, revolving, revolving consumer credit came, which of course has never been paid down from whence it came. So in effect, we know that the system is highly susceptible to any hip, hiccup. So the system is leveraged at least 20 to 1, and there is effectively 20 times more debt than money with which to repay it. And so, that is a long-winded way of setting the table for where we come down in our macro views. Clearly, it has great ramifications, negative ramifications for the currency, and given that the dollar is the world's reserve currency, we think it has significant ramifications for the global monetary system. Add this to the lax oversight from the Fed at time, which Paul State seems to have primarily focused on making sure banks could expand their balance sheets along with the repurchase agreements. The practice of swap programs helped the banks gain an unfair advantage while technically not breaking the letter of the law. Chris summarizes this process as, The story of leverage, which really began in the mid-90s, so this is not any particular policy disaster, that went off the rails in 2000, or even more recently than that. Interestingly, I have never connected the stop before between the overnights, the repos, and something else that really caught my eye in the mid-90s. Actually, it was the 90, 94 to 95. I don't know if you know about the sweep programs. For the benefit of listeners who may not, what Greenspan did was he allowed banks to essentially dodge the reserve requirements by sweeping demand accounts. And what I mean by that is if you have money in the checking account that yours that is yours to demand anytime you want, the banks have to hold a reserve against that by law of 10%. But banks were allowed through this policy to tweak 
that the Fed had done to effectively sweep the money out of that account just before the stroke of midnight. So that at midnight, when they take the snapshot and say, how much money do we have to hold in reserve against, they would sweep the money out of the way. The snapshot would then would be taken and the bank would say, look, there's no money. We get to hold a very light reserve here and the money would get swept back in, let's say, at 1201. But that is where I had chased back to this credit bubble, really got into high gear. And I thought it was due to the fact that banks were allowed to dodge these reserve requirements and effectively running leverage far, far higher. At some point, the growing leverage in the system and the rising amount of new credit and money supply leads to ever larger distortions in market pricing. Paul sees this as leading to inflation. You can read the rest of the article if you want. There's a couple more quotes there. But basically what the guy's saying is way more money has been lent than there is money to repay. And that most of the debt is now being held as bonds. The bonds are certificates for debt. And they're based on a repayment. And since there's 20 times more debt than there is money to repay the debt, gee, I think some of this is going to get defaulted on. Let me, let's put it this way. If you owe me $1,000 and all the money you have or expect that you could ever possibly come into in the next two years is $50, How likely am I to get my thousand bucks? That's exactly what's going on here. It's why we're in so much trouble. And remember, these bonds are being issued by corporate agencies. They're being in, in, issued by states, cities, counties, and the federal government. And they're being issued by nations all over the world. And that number of 20 times more debt than money is actually fairly constant across the entire thing. All right? Um, The next one comes to me from, let's see who sent me this one. By the way, the last one was sent to me by Dell. This one's sent to me by Chris. And uh, Chris sends me one. I, I want to make sure that we're tying everything together. That's why I might see why I'm jumping around here, but I'm really not. All of this stuff fits together like a puzzle. In the past, I've told you that as the United States becomes more and more economically weakened, And there are nations out there where wealthy people are going to have a currency advantage against the United States. And no matter how bad we suck, we're still the United States. We're still the holy grail of where to live, where to own property, where to own a business, where you want to be able to come to and live and work, build a company. There is no nation in the world, and I've talked to people from all over the world that are looking to move to a new country, and the only people that don't want to be in the United States are the ones that are leaving here and going somewhere else. As long as you're where those greener pastures are, it still looks pretty good here. So it's natural that as our currency weakens and as our real estate falters, that foreigners seeing property ownership as an easy thing to do in the United States would come here and start buying stuff. But it gets worse. Here we go, and Chuck Schumer is involved in this. Why am I not surprised? The reeling housing market, oh, by the way, it's on the Wall Street Journal. The reeling housing market has come to this. To shore it up, two senators are preparing to introduce a bipartisan bill. Uh, what bipartisan means for people that have not listened to the Survival Podcast for a long time, the actual uh, translation is screwed by both parties. That's what bipartisan bill means. Thursday, that would give residence visas to foreigners who spend at least a half a million dollars to buy homes in the United States. The provision is part of a larger package of immigration measures co-authored by Senator Chuck Schumer, Democrat New York, and Mike Lee, Republican Utah, designed to spur more foreign investment in the United States. So I'm warning you that we are subject to being taken over by foreign entities because our currency is weak and our housing market is weak, and your Senate is going out with a bipartisan measure to encourage this practice. Let me read on for you. 
Foreigners have accounted for a growing share of home purchases in South Florida, Southern California, Arizona, and other hard-hit markets. Chinese and Canadian buyers, among others, are taking advantage not only of big declines in U.S. home prices and reduced competitions from Americans, but also favorable foreign currency exchange rates. Huh, where have we heard that before? To fuel this demand, the proposed measure would offer visas to any foreigner willing to make a cash, trans, a cash investment of at least a half a million dollars on residential real estate, a single-family home, condo, or townhouse. Applicants can spend the entire amount on one house or spend as little as $250,000 on a residence and invest the rest in other residential real estate, which can be rented out. So, Mr. Chinese Businessman, you can come to America, buy a $250,000 beautiful American home, and live in it with a visa. Now, I'll get to this in a second. You can't work, but you can buy five $50,000 homes and become a slumlord. That's a half a million dollars, and Mr. Chinese Businessman, we will give you a visa. Sound good for America? Not to me. The measure would complement existing visa programs that allow foreigners to enter the U.S. if they invest in new businesses that create jobs. Backers believe the initiative would help soak up an excess supply of inventory when many would-be American home buyers are holding back because they're concerned about jobs or because they would have to take a big loss and sell their current home. This is a way to create more demand without costing the federal government a nickel, Senator Schumer said in an interview. It's not that it costs the Fed. First of all, the federal government doesn't have any money, Mr. Schumer. It's my money. It's my listeners' money. It's your constituents' money. The federal government has no money. It only has what it takes from its people. So please stop talking about it like it's your money, because it is not. It is our money. All right. Secondly, don't tell me this isn't going to cost us anything. All right, it's going to cost us more of our lost sovereignty. That's what it's going to cost us. Let's let me continue on. International buyers accounted for around 82 billion in U.S. residential real estate sales for the year ending in March. 82 billion dollars worth of U.S. real estate in the last year, like that, folks, sucked up by foreign entities, foreign people, non-Americans. 82 billion of our real estate bought up. All right. For the year ending in March, up from $66 billion during the previous year period. According to the data from the National Association of Realtors, foreign buyers accounted for at least 5.5% of all home sales in Miami and 4.3% of Phoenix home sales during the month of July, according to the MDA data quick. Folks, they're buying the stuff to rent it out. That's the hottest thing in the world right now is owning property and renting it to Americans who can't buy. And it's going to stay that way for a long time. <laughs> We are going to be living in the homes owned by... Chinamen, Canadians, uh, to a lesser degree, Brazilians, Indians. I'm saying, I'm not putting these people down. I mean, what they're doing for them is very, very smart. If, if, you know, if you were them and you had the money, this is a great opportunity. But what is it going to cost us as a whole? Foreigners immigrating to the U.S. with a new visa wouldn't be able to work here unless they obtained a regular work visa through normal process. They'd be allowed to bring a spouse and any children under the age of 18, but they wouldn't be able to stay in the country legally on the new visa once they sold their properties. So they have to maintain ownership of at least a half a million dollars of U.S. real estate to stay here. Think about that. Uh, unintended consequences, right? We talk about that a lot. The provision we create visas that are separate from the current programs so as not to displace anybody waiting for other visas. There'd be no cap on the home buyer visa program. Let me explain something to you. I actually don't think this is a bad program in and of itself. It's just not a good time for a program like this. This is when the nation's weak to hostile takeover. 
That's the way to look at this. It's like a company that's having earnings problems that has the potential to rebound, but its big competitors look at it and go, it's hurting, its stock's undervalued, this is we're going to do, start executing hostile takeover, start actually buying up shares of our competitor's stock so that we can try to push past 51%, become a majority holder in the company, merge with it, and get rid of the brand. <laughs> God, I wish I didn't have to make it that blunt for you, but that's exactly what this is. This is the U.S. being sold to the rest of the world. And Chuck Schumer and this other clown, whatever his name is, let me find him here, Mike Lee think this is a good idea. People, please understand what's happening in your nation. It's being parceled out right now. This isn't about you know any type of uh, discrimination against anybody. I don't care if you're from China. I don't have anything against the Chinese in particular. I don't have anything against a person from China or a Canadian, for God's sakes. But... When you're basically creating a system that incentivizes foreign ownership within our nation, you have to really think about what our future holds for us. And I guarantee you some bleeding heart in five years is going to want to give all these people citizenship. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of them don't want it. Because they have a U.S. visa and foreign citizenship. What better position could you be in if the shit really hits the fan? All right. Um, here's a question for somebody that kind of ties in with all this. This comes from Raymond, R Ramon. Raymond? Raymond, okay. Raymond, if the United States switched to a new currency not tied to gold and inflated it to four times the value of the dollar, wouldn't it have the effect of deflating the debt dollar, debt dollar for dollar, four to one? Okay, first of all, you're asking a question that has no real meaningful answer, Ramon. Raymond, I'm sorry. Uh, is it Raymond? I can't... Raymond, that's a weird name. It's not got a D. It's got an E at the end. Anyway, uh, Ray. I'm just going to call you Ray. So um, if we want to inflate money four to one, all we have to do right now is print four times more money than we have, and that's done. And that's what they do slowly over time. So they're already doing this. right? That's the entire Keynesian theory. If we just inflate the money constantly, we devalue the debt. Whether or not it's tied to gold doesn't mean anything. Because, and this is what the gold people don't understand, Congress has the power in the United States Constitution to set the weights and measures against anything, specifically gold. So if we went back to a gold standard tomorrow, we could say for every, I don't know, for every ounce of gold, there could be $10,000 or $20,000 or $5,000 or $1,000 of circulation. Tying the currency to gold doesn't do anything. It really, I know you want to believe that it does. I know all the people at Goldline have told you that it would make the world a better place and we would give flowers to the orphans and everybody would sing Kumbaya and the world would just return to a place of homeostasis if we would just tie our currencies to gold. But it's not the way it's worked in the past. And since the weight of gold against the currency is a variable, we can inflate it or deflate it, gold or not. It's about the total volume of currency versus the output of an economy. No other metrics really matter. So that's just to get through the first part of it. I say this because change has to happen soon, but change is relatively so, slow. So if that is true, change has to come basically already here, just not enacted. I feel from, and without proof, just the gut historical similarities that they will need to extract money from the people somehow. It's called inflation, Ray. Uh, as an analogy, if, if most people leaned over, if they had most people leaned over the table with debt and then offered them a deal that if we switched over to a new currency, they could mark off 75% of your debt as well as the U.S. debt, the people would be inclined to go for it and the U.S. would win. The debt would intentionally appear to have shrunk and they would have, they would, they would need, uh, there would, 
they this would need to be a world currency with everybody on board. This is see, it's, it's not going to happen because your creditors are not going to let you do that. All right, this may not make any sense at all. In a way, it doesn't. In a way, it doesn't. This thought came to me as a dream last night after doing a little research on new presidential dollar coins with what appears to be only a quarter of value in metal. They are printing them for a reason. They chose that. Uh, value for a reason. We're going to war and reaching across the globe for a reason. Anyway, thanks for reading my email. Sorry if it seems like I'm rambling. Just awoke and wrote this. Didn't really think it through. Okay. Well, I don't think you did, Ray, but you got actually some interesting points here. First of all, the dollar coins don't matter. Doesn't matter that they're printed, they're made with a quarter worth of uh, metal because a thousand dollar bill and a one dollar bill are made with the exact same value in ink and paper. It matters what backs the money. Now, this is the interesting thing about coinage. Coinage is the only debt-free money in America. The U.S. Mint makes coinage and puts it into circulation, and there's no debt on it. If we really wanted to fight national debt, we would all spend coins in our economy. Quarters, nickels, dimes, and dollar coins. Problem is, that's a pretty big pain in the butt for a $200 transaction, isn't it? $200 U.S. dollar coins. But they're actually the only debt-free currency out there. It really doesn't have anything to do with what you're asking about. Understand that if we have a 2% inflation rate, right, just 2%, which is moderate, and what generally those clowns try to do, that in 12 years, that's 24%, right? But it's actually more than 24% because it compounds on itself. So in about 12 years, you actually get this 3-to-1 thing you're talking about. And it happens almost every decade. I just did a show about this where I talked about what money would do for you in 1970 versus today. They've already done this. The problem is, it is you're right, is it comes slowly, right? So the debt grows as the existing debt is devalued. And the debt grows faster than we devalue the current debt. So the solution, and you're not far off. Ray, you're not far off. The solution will be a rapid exchange and a rapid rebasing of the currency. It probably will involve gold and no gold bugs. It won't fix a damn thing for you or me or anyone else living in the real world. What will happen is a massive quick inflation in a neighborhood of 40 to 50%. And those of you that are waiting for Weimar and a wheelbarrow of money for a sack of potatoes, you're just not in touch with reality. The people in control of this system, the U.S. is too big. It's too big a part of the global economy. It can't happen that way. They are controlling how it happens, so they won't make it happen that way. You need to understand that Germany was supposed to have a World War II. The people behind the scenes controlling the money wanted a World War II. The, the, the money was manipulated, and the debt was imposed on Germany to create a World War II. You know, look up I.G. Farvin. Find out what they did for Nazi Germany, even though they were a U.S.-based company. Look at who funded both sides of the war, Rockefellers. Uh, they're not conspiracy stuff. This is all very easy to determine if you want to. So you have to say, well, what do the chess players want to do with America? Well, they want to turn us back into 1950 America. Eventually, after they've gutted us and ripped us off and went over and started to develop Asia, and they make us dependent on the rest of the world and part of this world government, that's what they want. And again, I know when I say world government, you're thinking conspiracy theory. Jack got his tin hat on. Folks, all you have to do is read what the people want done everywhere but the people here in America and even many of our own people. Global government, 
I, I know this is hard for you to understand. Global government is a very popular global idea. People want it. People think it's a good idea. People think it'll be like Star Trek. right? If we ever find dilithium crystals and unlimited resources, maybe it could be, but I doubt it. But without the dilithium crystals, as long as we're burning dinosaur sludge right, and swamp sludge, we call it oil, right, natural gas, and, and solar panels is the best we can do otherwise, and a little bit of nuclear fusion or nuclear fission, if that's the best we can do, we don't have unlimited resources. And we don't get kumbaya. And, and this is where we're headed. So with, with Ray's question, the, the real answer here is they're going to do exactly what you say. They're not going to get anybody to buy in it. They're just going to do it. It's probably going to involve a link back to the gold standard. And everybody, including those holding gold, is still going to lose. I'm sorry I can't make it any better for you. Let me continue on so I can get things wrapped up here today. The next one uh, comes to me from Steve. And Steve sends me uh, an article I'm only going to read a little bit of to you because it's like a three-page article. But it's been put out by the Christian Science Monitor and it's published on CNBC. A long, steep drop for American standard of living. Uh, think life is not as good as it used to be, at least in terms of your wallet. You'd be right about that. The standard of living for Americans has fallen longer and more steeply over the past three years than at any time since the U.S. government began recording it five decades ago. Bottom line, the average individual now has $1,315 less of disposable income than he or she did three years ago at the onset of the Great Recession. Even though the recession ended, technically speaking, in mid-2009, which is nonsense, by the way, um, that means less money to spend at the spa or the movies, less for vacations, new carpeting for the house, or dinner at a restaurant. In short, it means a less vibrant economy with more Americans spending primarily on necessities. The diminished standard of living, moreover, is squeezing the middle class, whose relentless and discontent relentlessness and discontent are evident in grassroots movements such as the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street, would actually have nothing to do with this, uh, and who may take out their frustrations on incumbent politicians in next year's election. Um, I'll let you read the rest of, what you, of this article if you want to, but basically the message is people are slipping from the middle class down into the lower middle class and from the upper little middle class into the, you know, the, the, the mainstream middle class. And people are actually falling from what we consider affluent down into uh, upper middle class. Who told you this a long time ago? That's right. I don't mean to toot my own horn because I am not happy to be uh, right about this. People send me sometimes emails with stuff like this and go, do you ever get tired of being right about this? And my response is every single day. I don't want to be right about any of this. I don't want anything I've told you today to be true. I don't. I, I want a year from now, I want emails from you guys going, Jack, you blew it. Look at we're 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 they're doing great and they've, they've got it all fixed. I want to be wrong. Sadly, I'm not. We are seeing a slip in the classes. And I, I believe that a lot of people aren't going to fall one rung. They're going to fall two. And it's, it's an interesting thing to look at. The last one I want to cover for you today is on the Economic Collapse blog. And uh, it's top 100 statistics about the collapse of the economy that every American voter should know. And hold tight with me. I'm not going to go through 100 of them. I'm probably going to do 10 at the most. Uh, I'll let you read the whole thing for yourself, but I want you to get a feeling for what this is because I'm going to shift at the end and I'm going to give you a reason for pessimi pessimistic optimism. All right, I'm going to tell you what to do about this stuff. 
Not that you haven't heard the what to do before, but I'm going to put it in a different frame of reference for you that will make it more concrete, I think. But you've got to hear some of these things first. And you understand there's a hundred of these, and I'll give you maybe ten. Statistic 100, a staggering 48.5% of all Americans live in a household that receives some form of government benefits. Back in 1983, that number was before, but below 30%. Almost half of Americans are receiving government benefits today, folks. Please think about that as the government is in itself bankrupt. Uh, number 90, U.S. households are now receiving more income from the U.S. government than they are paying to the U.S. government in taxes. So not only is the government spending more money than it has, it's not just overspending in, um, let's say, into the private sector to things like defense spending and security where they put hands down your pants and what have you. They're actually paying out more to taxpayers than they're taking in from taxpayers. They're running a direct taxpayer deficit. How long do you think that can last? And what happens to the people that they're making dependent on this, this system? Uh, in, in number 80, in America today, approximately two-thirds of all college students graduate with student loans. I'm actually shocked it's not higher. I'm surprised that uh, a full third of college students get out without loans. I, I really didn't have that optimistic of a view of it, but it still sucks, doesn't it? Number 75, and this is why Jack says college is not for everyone, folks. 317,000 waiters and waitresses have college degrees. Number 74, in the United States today, approximately 365,000 cashiers have college degrees. It's, eh, let me go on to another one. I'll skip way down for you because they all suck. It doesn't really matter which one I pull for you. Let's go to number 50. According to a study between 1969 and 2009, the median wages earned by American men between the age of 30 and 50 dropped by 27% after you account for inflation. Interesting that I didn't pick that one out, but I just did a, a show where I talked about my father and what he made as a construction worker in 1972 versus what a construction worker makes today. It's a hell of a lot more than a 27% drop in that particular industry. This is across-the-board aggregate averages. Let's jump down to, I don't know, number 38. Historically, the percentage, percentage of residential mortgages in foreclosure in the United States has tended between 1% and 1.5%. So of all the mortgages, about 1% to 1.5% would typically be in foreclosure. Today it's up to around 4.5%. I'm actually surprised it's that low. I wonder how many of them have gone through foreclosure and are just sitting there as a bank asset and not technically in foreclosure anymore because the foreclosure already happened. I bet it's closer to 10%. If anybody can back that figure up, let me know. I'm spitballing with it, but I think it's probably close. The U.S. government now says the Medicare is number 30. Medicare trust fund will run out five years faster than they were projected last year. Son of a gun. The government messed up on a financial projection? No, that can't be right. That one's got to be wrong. Uh, number 20, approximately one-third of the entire population of the state of Alabama is on food stamps. One-third of Alabamans are on food stamps. Number 10, the wealthiest 1% of Americans now own more than a third of all the wealth in the United States. Is that a reason to tax the wealthy? Or is that an understanding of how weak everybody else has become due to a plutocracy where money is controlled at the elite layer? Hmm. Because the wealthy ain't them 1%, folks. That 1% ain't going to pay those taxes on millionaires. Because they're not millionaires. They're multi-billionaires. That's that 1%. The, when you hear that class warfare statistic, 
And you think the guy that you went to school with who worked his ass off and built a business has a net worth of about $4 million today is one of the people that's counted in owning that one percent of America, or one third of America and being the top one percent? No. No. They might lump him in there, but he's not really making the big bite out of things. He's just not. I'm sorry to tell you that. Um, most of these people that are in this top 1% of Americans, they don't even have what you and I think of as a typical income. They own assets. They own corporations. They don't have jobs like you and I do. They're not a wage earner. When we talk about the top 1% of wage earners, these people aren't the top 1% of wage earners. They don't have a wage. They have a dividend from the company they own. They have a bonus from the company. Their company pays for everything. That's the real wealthy, and they're not going to pay taxes because they're paying for congressmen. See, if you buy congressmen, you don't pay taxes. That's how the system works. That's why we're screwed. Number five, according to another recent poll, 80% of the American people believe we're actually in a recession right now. That's the smartest 80% poll ever. I can't believe that 80% of Americans are actually freaking aware that that's the truth, even though the TV tells them it's not true. Number one, according to a new CNN ORC international poll, 27% of all Americans have never even heard of Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke. <sighs> so much for the 80% of intelligent people. 27% of all Americans don't even know who Ben Bernanke or the Federal Reserve is. I guarantee you it's probably 80% that don't know what the Federal Reserve actually does. This is where we're at. But I promised you optimism today. I promised you a different view of this. I promised you a concrete way to see what, what's coming and how we're going to get through with it. It occurred to me today, and I'm glad I waited to do this show until it occurred to me. I was thinking today about war veterans. I was on my way to the office, and I was listening to this clown, and I do call him a clown named Dick Antoine. I don't know if anybody else out there has ever heard him, but he's a local Hot Springs radio guy. He's on the only AM radio station that basically will come in, and I listened to him for the whopping 10 minutes it takes me to drive to work today. And he had a homeschool girl on, so I actually listened. It didn't turn him off or turn him down to where I couldn't hear him, uh, and I actually listened because I thought that was an interesting subject. And he was talking about Veterans Day. And, of course, if you've listened to the Veterans Day show, which will be coming up soon, and this time will be bumpered with the new song, What Have You Done?, um, you know that it was on 11-11. It was on uh, November 11th at the 11th hour. And it was a stupid thing that was done by the people brokering the peace when the war was already decided, where the war went on for another day and a half, so that someday a James Earl Jones-type voice could be done in a documentary that would say, and on the 11th day of the 11th month, at the 11th hour, The guns fell silent. And he, because he's really wrapped up in illegal immigration and let's just give everybody amnesty, kept calling it, what? Amnesty Day instead of Armistice Day. And it made me mad and I shut him off and I went on a rant about what I just said to you. And I started thinking about our war veterans. And I started thinking about the fact that I grew up with World War II veterans all around me. When I was a kid, you know, back in the 80s, it seemed like every guy that was, you know, 40-ish, late 40-ish or older, was a World War II vet. All of them, right? All the old men were World War II vets. Everybody with gray hair was a World War II veteran. It seemed like everybody answered the call. And I grew up with the concept that these men were the greatest generation. Trust me, folks, this is going to come back to explaining what it's going to be like to go through the economy. But just follow me with this and understand this, and let me talk to you at a deeper level than normally today. I grew up with that. I bet you did, too. I bet most of you that have these men in your lives as fathers and grandfathers or uncles or great uncles 
grew up with this greatest generation in mind. And you grew up, and as you drove down the highway system, you heard that the veterans came home and they built that highway system. And you went to school and you learned the history of World War II, five years of blood and guts and misery and the death of six million plus people in concentration camps and, and hundreds of thousands of men from nations all over the world. And the total death toll, by the way, in World War II is estimated at 60 million people. 60 million people died in World War II. That was 2.5% of the world's population. But when you learned about World War II, you were taught that the U.S. was what? We were the winners. And it ended the Great Depression, and there were so many wonderful things that came out of the United States winning World War II. That's basically how it's taught. Well, a statistic they probably didn't teach you, and you probably never wrote down on a question on your test. You might have had, you know, what was the cause of World War II? What was the first battle of World War II, so to speak, Pearl Harbor? Or, you know, what do they call the end of the war in Europe or Japan, VJ and VE Day, what have you. Uh, but I bet you no one out there had this question on your history exam in, uh, in high school about the U.S. and World War II. And if you did, maybe you'll remember it. What was the total number of casualties, deaths, that the U.S. experienced in World War II? The number, 418,500. Almost a half a million Americans died in World War II. Half a million. But yet we're taught that this was a good thing, and we're taught that all of this economic prosperity came to America, especially in the 50s and 60s, and blue-collar jobs, and our soldiers came home, and they were welcomed. It wasn't like Vietnam, where they were ignored or spit on or, or mocked or, or discarded. It wasn't like the Forgotten War of Korea. It was a warm embrace. The whole country was in a euphoria, and they came home, and they used their GI Bill and their college fund, and they went to college, and they got jobs, and they had more prosperity than any generation ever had. And that in many ways they were the greatest generation, and we owe so much to them. I'm not saying anything about that is technically untrue. But we leave out the 418,000 that fell down to the ground and never got up. We also leave out the hundreds of thousands of men who were scarred emotionally and physically and were never quite the same ever again. It's actually always astounded me how many of our World War II veterans just went back to normal life. And I think that one of the people that wrote in and talked about the decompression they had because they didn't just get on a plane and, and be back in the world tomorrow like our guys do today. They had time with their buddies who went through it with them to talk about it and decompress. I think there's something to that. But there was something about those men that made them able to do that. They really believed in what they were doing. Now, what does this have to do with the economic future of the United States? The article that I read to you, that talks about us coming back to a place of world prominence, world power swinging back to America, the amazing assets that we have here, the ability we have to, to bring back the great America that I was just talking about is there. But let me put it to you this way. If you were 19 years old in 1941 and you were going off to fight World War II, how comforting would it be to you to know that if you come back, a great period of prosperity awaits you, but along the way you could lose an arm, a leg, an eye, or be dead, and that you were going to go through misery and pain and cold and heat, it would be a very, very difficult time for you. It would be a difficult time for your countrymen, but much more difficult for you. All right, 
Here it is. Here's how I explain what we're about to go through with the economy, even with optimism on the other side. It's like World War II, and we're all going. And not just because we have to buy war ba more bonds and ration our foods and plant a victory garden, because we're all going in the trenches this time. That's what's about to happen in the United States. And in, just like war, there will be people that walk through, even that walk through what looks like the worst of society, and they won't get grazed with a bullet. And there will be people that were always going to be safe and always be in the rear and always had money and always did everything smart. And all they were doing is taking a helicopter ride from one rear echelon area to another rear echelon area and they get shot down by a SAM. It's exactly what it's going to be like. There'll be people that seem like they should never get through it that will get through it unscathed. And there will be people that seem like they could be completely insulated and they're going to end up shot down. But we're all going. And even if the other side is a rebound of our nation. Even if we don't lose our sovereignty to a global governance and global economic system, even if our people find the intestinal and moral fortitude to stand up and remember what this country is supposed to be about and look back to our Constitution, we've done too much damage to get through this without a financial war. A lot of people are predicting there's going to be a major war that the U.S. is going to be involved in because history belays that it is so when these types of economic problems are there. They may or may not be right, but we are going to go through an economic war. We are going to go through a place where everybody is going to sacrifice, not because the government taxes you more, because the economy will falter and fall and burn. The economic tsunami has not hit. What you just saw was a hiccup. It was, a, it was a high tide that was unexpected. That's what this was. The tsunami's coming. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I don't know who's going to get out the other side. But just like if you were really paying attention, you probably could have looked at World War II and said the United States will win this. They'll come out the other side, and they'll be better for it in the end. You probably could have figured that out. The writing was pretty well on the wall. But you couldn't have predicted who was going to come home, who was going to be maimed, who was going to be lost. Folks, I'm sorry if this doesn't make you feel better. I'm hoping that it actually gives you the courage to believe in a future in spite of what you know. That's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that it gives you the courage to do the things that we talk about. I'm hoping it gives you the courage that if you find that piece of land that you know you want to ride this thing out on, you go out there and you figure out how to buy it. And maybe you don't mortgage, maybe you can't get a mortgage, maybe you don't mortgage it. You know, maybe like some of us out there, some of the audience, you live in an RV for three years. I don't know. I'm not saying go do that. I'm not saying turn your whole world upside down tomorrow. I'm saying believe in the future. Believe that we have something to prepare for. Be believe we have a reason to survive this for. But don't think for one minute it's just gonna it's just gonna escape by us that we're not gonna have to pay the pay the fiddler so to speak. We've danced a long time, and the bills come and due, and all of your politicians and bankers and the Pope and everybody else that's talking about all these wonderful solutions. When the bill comes due, they're gonna have what I used to call in the in the business world Tyrannosaurus arms. You know Tyrannosaurus, great big giant Tyrannosaurus. Ah, order another port, order some dessert for everybody, right? That's the Tyrannosaurus at the business table. The guy that's there from another company looks like he's going to pick the check up because he's like orchestrated the whole thing. And when the bill comes due, he gets T-Rex arms. He's like, oh yeah, I'll get that in a minute. Let's uh, wait. I got to go to the bathroom. Uh, you know, and he just keeps stalling until finally you pick the check up. That's going to be all of the people with supposed solutions when the bill comes due for us. 
They're going to all have T-Rex arms. They're not just going to go to the restroom. They're going to go to the restroom and crawl out the window. And they're going to head to Asia. And we're going to be here, and we're going to have to deal with this. And that's why I believe it makes so much sense for us now to focus on solidifying our positions in life at the comfort level we want. And to do that with as little dependence on monetary things as possible. If it costs money, buy it and pay for it and have it and make it a lifelong or at least a decade-long investment. If you're spending your hard money on something now, it be, better be something that's going to provide for you for at least 10 years. If it's not going to provide for you for 10 years, it's a temporary luxury. I'm not saying to get rid of all those things in your life. I still have an iPod. Of course, I have an iPod Classic, 30 gigabyte. <laughs> you know, I'm telling you, you got to start thinking this much more long-term way. We are going to go through the economic equivalent of a World War II. And we have to man up, we have to soldier up like that generation of our fathers and grandfathers and for some of us our great-grandfathers. We have to be prepared for it. We have to be prepared for sacrifice. We've got to plant those victory gardens again, this time for a different reason. But it can be done. I can't make the problem go away. I can't believe a story like Mr. Pritchard's is anything more than a fairy tale if it's supposed to comfort me for the next 10 years. If it's supposed to comfort me about the future of my nation, I have a lot of faith in it. But if it's supposed to comfort me that we're not going to completely financially burn down, given that we have 20 times more debt than money, I'm sorry, then it's, it's, it's Hansel and Gretel. It's a nice story. In the words of, uh, of my good buddy Mike Gazer, it's a wonderful fiction. But it's still a fiction. Tough times are coming. But you are, we are. Our nation is strong enough to get through it if we don't forget who and what we are. If we'll remember the Constitution as the foundation of our republic versus an inconvenient thing that gets in the way once in a while and occasionally needs an amendment or two, if we can remember that, if we can remember the people that came before us, if we can remember that the first American was a British subject, but he fought for America before there was an America. If we can remember that, if we can find that in our hearts and our spirits and our souls, if we can find that in our willingness to do what needs to be done to take care of ourselves, our families, and our communities, then we can get through this. And I believe we will. But I think that if anybody tells you we can avoid it, the most we can do is kick the can down the road for maybe another five or ten years. And the storm will be worse when it hits. Sooner or later it's coming. I hope you're prepared. And I hope you have some optimism about your ability to get through to the other side. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Revolution is you. 